turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13 is our um, lesson this morning read by Mike Rockefeller, Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. If you were tracking at all through that text, um, you will recognize that it is a, oh, thank you, sir. You will recognize that it is a difficult text, um, but again, coming from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So that's where our chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. The, let me turn the timer on, okay. The text we're studying this morning, again, comes once again from the mouth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we get into these middle chapters of Luke, um, especially this, this chapter here and these words here spoken to us through, through Luke, through the Holy Spirit, the authoritative word of God, um, it's, it's about placing your faith and your trust again in Christ. That's where we've been at over the past few weeks. Uh, Jesus is getting more and more pointed, more and more uh, incisive as Jesus' time is running out. He's going to the cross. Time is getting short. He's with his disciples. He has already spoke to them about the cost of discipleship, um, how imp- important it was that you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. He's spoken many times about the priority of discipleships, how, our, our, how followers of Jesus need to be centered on and flow out of our relationship with him. That's what life is supposed to be, not, not, not things and not possessions, but through Christ, our relationship with him and, and, and the gospel mission that we are on. Our text in verse 22, the first verse in our text, reminds us that what, what Luke said back in chapter 9, that Jesus had set his face Toward Jerusalem, the divine clock is ticking, the, the calendar is moving forward, Jesus is nearing the consummation of his saving work, of his suffering, his rejection, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. He will go to the cross, and there he will die on his atonement for sin. He will, he will forgive his enemies, he'll turn to a dying thief, if you know the story, and promise him paradise as he substitutes himself as an atonement for sinners like you and me. Then on the third day, rise again and take it into glory. And nothing is going to deter Jesus. Nothing is going to distract him from doing what he's called to do. Salvation, atonement, redemption, and glory was the goal. And in chapter 13, he's still on his way toward Jerusalem to Calvary, to the cross. Time's running out. He's spoken now not only about how important it is to follow him, what it means, but also the destination of all mankind. That seems to be the, the, the focus these days. It includes his return. We talked about that. His establishment of his eternal kingdom. And how everyone must repent of their sins. And be ready and waiting for him to return. Because time is running out. And judgment will come. He taught about properly interpreting the times. That he was the king of kings. And standing right in front of him. They were good with, with the, uh, interpreting the weather. They saw the winds. They saw the, the clouds. But they fail to recognize that the King of Kings has showed up. The Messiah has come. The Lord himself has been given, preaching the gospel. He's he's teaching, he's healing, he's demonstrating his authority, remember, over demons, over over disease and death itself. But they fail to understand and interpret that sign. He claims to forgive sins as only God can do. And last week we saw, once again, he healed on the Sabbath. Some woman was on the Sabbath, had come in on the Sabbath day. She was bound by an evil spirit for 18 years. And the, the religious leader, the ruler of the synagogue, became indignant because Jesus worked 
on the Sabbath. He, he disrupted their liturgy and he completely disregarded their silly and stupid man-made rules, their Sabbath man-made rules. It's no wonder that someone in the crowd, after watching all this ministry going on, raises their hands and asks the question that was on everybody's mind but nobody wanted to ask. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like how many will escape judgment? How many will really repent and be ready and waiting? How many will receive the message of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom? How many will acknowledge that the king of king has come and, and recognize your kingly authority and power? How many could there be? That's the question. And Jesus responds, that the door of salvation is narrow. The door of salvation will close. The banquet of salvation is wide. The door of salvation is narrow. The door of salvation will close. And the banquet of salvation is wide. Number one. If there's ever a text that runs completely contrary to the cultural norms of today, it's right here. Unfortunately, many, I should say, not many, I should say, unfortunately, some pastors, ministers, Bible teachers, even Bible professors want to tap dance and avoid answering the question that people ask. Is Jesus really the only way of salvation? So they say, are you telling me that every other religion, every other belief is wrong and only yours is right? And when I hear that question or when I'm asked that question, I want to say to them, listen, what I think and what I say doesn't mean anything. What matters, what matters eternally is what did Jesus say? We are as narrow as Jesus himself. He speaks of the path of salvation, the, the way to have your sins forgiven, the, the eternal life as a narrow path that is to be entered through a narrow door. And this door is opened by God to enemies like us, to the undeserving and to the ill-deserving are now welcome because of Christ into the kingdom of God, into the presence of a holy, righteous, and good God. Once enemies, now reconciled. And Jesus taught many times that he is the way of salvation, the only way, singular and exclusive. And the door of salvation is narrow. Verse 22, he's going from town to town again. We know that was his mission. Teaching and preaching, journeying toward Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, those who are saved, who, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, seek to enter and will not be able. Question was familiar in that day. Not unusual, particularly to rabbis and teachers of scripture. The question was subject to a lot of debate in that day as it is today. And there were some in the religious leadership and, 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 and some of the rabbis taught that almost every single person of Israel will share in the world to come. And yet some were teaching that only, that the Most High only, uh, for the sake of the few, will enter into the kingdom of God. So there was, there was a mixed bag in that day. I will tell you this, if there's anyone who knows the answer to that question about how many will be saved, how few or many, is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. 
It's a question that is not only relevant and vitally important in that day, but it's vitally and important and, and, and relevant to us today. I, I wonder if there was someone in that crowd, the one that actually asked the question, heard re- earlier Jesus' commentary on the local news back in chapter 13, 1 through 5, where Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just like the Galileans murdered at the altar in the temple, or the tower, you know the story, that fell and killed 18 people in Siloam, and now they're wondering out loud and hearing all that and just saying, hey, how many people are actually going to be saved? I don't think he was looking for a number, 200,460, you know, I don't think that's it, but Jesus doesn't give him a number anyway, and he speaks to them in the way of a command and then like a a parable analogy where he compares salvation to a door that must be entered in. You notice the answer. There will be many who will be unable to enter, not only because the door is narrow, but there will be a time when the door is closed. Jesus is not going to get bogged down with this theoretical discussion, get into, the, get into what everyone's thinking of that day, about the number of people get sa- who, are, who are saved that come through the door. But he gives a clear warning that many are going to squander their opportunity. There's many who are going to be left out in the cold. So he urges his questioners and others to what? Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. Verbal, it's, it's, it's a plural verb. He's talking to everyone who would hear, not only to those in that day, but no matter what the number is, whether it's this, this morning you hearing this or those, that everyone's in that number who will come through that door. One of our church fathers of the third century said that Jesus is purposely silent to the useless question, but proceeds to speak of what was essential, end quote. Commands us to strive through the narrow door. And that's much more important than than getting into numbers, any kind of mathematical calculation of who's coming and who's not coming. Who's entering and who's not entering. So the first question I want, the first thing I want us to see in this text is strive through a narrow door is this. It is a command. It is imperative. Not a suggestion. He's not concerned of what other people may think or say. He's not taking a poll of public opinion. He's commanding the people listening in that day and all the people of all time to strive through the narrow door. Second, I think it's very important that we interpret what Jesus is saying when he commands to strive through the door. What does he mean by striving through to enter into salvation? He certainly cannot mean that we are to work real hard and earn our way, strive our way by our own merit and our own working toward our salvation. Either our salvation is a matter of grace given to us freely by God or it is not. And the scriptures are clear. Right? The scripture is perfectly clear. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So what does he mean? Strive is the Greek word that we get our word agony. Agonizomai, or agonizomai, merely. We get agony. Jesus, what it's suggesting in this text, and what Jesus is talking about, is laboring and struggling in the effort to get through the door. And the verb that's being used is used in other contexts, athletes, especially athletes in training. Striving here is this, in this text, is not to work one's way to God, is earning their salvation, but to labor and, and to, to strive at listening and responding to the gospel message. 
What Jesus is talking about is he's already done this in multiple places already about the priority and cost of discipleship. To strive implies wholeheartedness, not a half-hearted effort. It doesn't mean that we can somehow through human achievement or our merits, our own work and merits grant us entrance into the kingdom. It is our heart's affection and the attitude of the mind like a runner, like an athlete that won't let anything come in between them and the race. Whatever the goal is, they're wholehearted toward doing what they want that's, that's before them. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen up, sit up, pay attention, and follow through. The reason that they're not able to enter does not have to do with being good enough, right? Not earning it, but their willingness to repent. We've seen that over and over. Will they truly, wholeheartedly turn from their sin? Chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But there'll be those who refuse to do so. So the main point of the verse centers on the need to make sure that we're part of that few into that narrow door through repentance and faith, experiencing the mercy and the grace of God, which, will be, which the Holy Spirit will produce in us a heart and a soul and an affection to God and His Word. Many will call me Lord, but not many will do what I do, what I, what I tell them to do, he said earlier. So Jesus moves from this general question, how many people... The Galileans were murdered. This, this, the tower was fell. How many people like, no, listen, don't worry about all that. Listen, you strive. You pay attention. You follow through. You genuinely repent of your sin. Don't worry about them. The door is available to you now. And let's not miss the clear implication of the words of Jesus. God has opened one narrow door for us to enter in. The door is Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the door. He who passes through me shall inherit eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the door of salvation. I'm the door of invitation. The door is available to you, to you this morning, to me this morning. But others will say, oh, yeah. Many people think that just everyone will be granted eternal life. Everyone, almost everyone, right? People say, you mean everyone? Well, not those really bad people. I'm not one of those, but you know, you know who I'm talking about. And the claim that there's one way of salvation, one door and one narrow door that Jesus is inviting us through, everyone else will be outside of that salvation doorway, is, is just bigotry. That's what we're facing today, especially in our pluralistic, relativistic culture. And because of the hostility and claims of you know, toward Christianity and exclusive claims of Christ, some people will downplay, even deny the unique claims that Christ has made here in this text and other places. They believe that everyone will be saved. They don't want to say that there's one way. And God will say, we don't know, they may say, but Jesus is pretty clear. Strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, for many I tell you will seek to enter and will not be able. You see, family, this is not about our existence, uh, Philippians talks about working your salvation out with fear and trembling. This is not about our existence as a believer. This is, this is about walking through the narrow door of salvation. The fact that a door does exist, a door separates those in and those out. 
Those who are a family and adopted into the family of God and those who are foes outside the family of God. Just like our home has a door in and out, so the kingdom of God has a door. The door of salvation opens and man enters through it. The entry is made by God. And Jesus said God's on one side and the other side is left out. Life inside, death outside. It's a narrow door. And only a few people pass. And if you've been here for any amount of time at all here at King's Chapel, you will know that there's only one door that leads to eternal life while every other door leads to destruction because Jesus Christ alone has done what's necessary for sinners to be saved. Right? He alone lived the perfect required life. He alone offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. He alone has the doorway and the open door for us to walk through. Have you found the narrow way? Have you walked through the narrow door of salvation? That's the question. If not, keep reading your Bibles. Keep listening to the gospel. Keep rehearsing the gospel. Keep praying for the help of God's spirit. Jesus will show you the way through the narrow door. But there'll come a time, family, that the door will be closed. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and notice what it says, and you... Begin to stand outside and to knock. Lord, open to us. Then he will say to you, or he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. This parable-like analogy not only tells us that the door of salvation is narrow, but again, the access to this door at some point will be closed. And the focus is, not, is on the action of the master of the house who rises, shuts the door, and denies entry to those who are seeking entrance. Knocking on a door that has already been closed. Family, Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is the son over God's house who determines who stays and who goes, who comes in and who's left out. We must come God's way. And that decision needs to be made while we have breath. And we've seen this urgency on the lips of Jesus over and over again. Back in chapter 12, verse 58, when Jesus talks about uh, making every effort to settle your debt or be dragged into prison. Time's running short. Chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, where he says, let's give the fig tree one more year to produce fruit. If not, cut it down. Jesus once again is saying that the offer of salvation to come through that narrow door is not indefinite. The warning is not to presume on the grace of God. Jesus doesn't say it once, but twice. Verse 25 and 27, does not know where they are coming from. Family, that's a disastrous place to be in. Many people think, oh, you know, I know Jesus, I'm united to him, but they're not united to him by faith. And he says, I won't let you in. And he shuts, he shuts the door. Look what it says in verse 26. He says that you really don't know me in a personal salvific or salvation way. Verse 26. Then you begin to say, hold on. You know, you're knocking at the door. You can't come in. The door is locked. And we say, but, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our street. But he will say, I tell you I, again, Verse 27, I do not know where you come from. And you can almost sense the shock and surprise of those knocking at the door because I thought I knew him. 
And the assumption was that he knew them, not just I know him. The immediate context, I believe, Jesus talking to the folks that were with them. Remember, you know, probably, probably some of those people who couldn't interpret this times, couldn't understand that Jesus was standing right, in for, right before them. Yeah, they had exposure to his earthly ministry, no question. They were witnesses of his miracles. Maybe even some were there when he raised people from the dead. They've listened to him to the, preach the gospel on multiple occasions. Perhaps they knew him, but, but maybe it was more of a social or maybe a, a cultural acquaintance. Some of them, it says, even shared in table fellowship with him. Jesus has been going from Galilee, as we see, he's heading toward Jerusalem, which would be south, preaching and teaching in, in the cities, in, in the villages, from village to village. Maybe eating and drinking and having a table fellowship with many people, teaching in their streets. And yet, he says to them, I do not know where you come from. That's hard. It's the, it's the language of having no personal knowledge of someone. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you place your faith in him because you know who he is. He's, he's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one that's been crucified on my behalf. He's the one that died for my sins and rose again. He's the ultimate anointed King of Kings. You know that he's the, the son of the living God. And you know that he died and he rose and he forgives my sin. You know him, and because you know him, you trust him, and, and you're resting and you're relying completely and solely on the work of Jesus. But the Bible also declares that the reason that you know him is because he knows you. And so the language, I don't know where you come from, is Jesus saying, you don't have faith in me, you don't know me, and I don't know you. That's, that's hard language. It's, I think it's meant to stir the heart. I don't think, and I just want to say out you know, just want to say to you this morning, I, I don't think that we are to walk around what they say, navel glazing, uh, uh, gazing all the time and always concerned about ourselves. Am I really saying? That's not what Jesus is saying. There's resting in the gospel. There's trusting in the finished work. You know you've been born again by the Spirit. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit. You're a child of God. But maybe... This is a time for those who may be playing around with Christianity, haven't really made the decision, and knows they've been coming, but they know in their heart of hearts that they have not truly repented of the sin. Jesus gives us some terrifying words here in verse 27 to those, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Workers of unrighteousness, literally, are those who, who live for their own glory. There are those who have an anti-God mentality, an anti-God life. Someone could be very moral in this standard, in, excuse me, in this cultural uh, culture that they live in. They may do the right thing. That's not what Jesus, workers of evil, ungodly people can be very moral. What makes someone an evil worker or someone worldly or ungodly is not first their behavior, it's their worship. Not first their behavior, it's their worship. Workers of evil, not only those just who horrendous, indescribable evil, but, but people who think and believe that there is no God. They neglect and reject God. They don't honor and worship and glorify the Lord Jesus. And he's calling them to repentance, have faith in him. And he speaks to those who attempt to come into the presence without believing him. He says, no, you need to trust me, to know me. And without knowing me, you will not be known. 
And I think that problem is not just in those days, for the people who are walking with Jesus, who heard and saw the miracles and, and, and the ministry of Jesus, but for us today as well. Right? Some even come to the communion table, eat and drink of the cup, but it's more of a cultural pressure rather than Christ's affection. There's no acceptance, they're half-hearted, and people are just not truly have repented of their sins. The people hear and learn things about Jesus, but do you know personally the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you truly repented and have been born again and know and love him? That's the question. Can't settle just for church services or my, my husband, my wife, my mom, my dad, my neighbor, my friend, my family is bringing me to church. There's a difference between learning about God and actually knowing God personally. And that's what Jesus is getting to. John 17, 3 says this. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. Life's in the Son, 1 John 5. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And the only way to know God, the Bible tells us, is through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through the Son, John 14, 6. That's what Jesus is getting to for them and for us. We must know God personally through repentance and faith. And that's what Jesus has been talking about for, for, for a long time. Family, this is, this is serious words. Receive these words of Jesus from a place of love and salvation. An invitation of Jesus, his love declaring to you that come, there's an invitation through the narrow door and it is still accessible. Jesus is saying here that God has opened the door for you. The door, the narrow door opportunity, the invitation of salvation is available to you, but someday it will close. That's hard, I know. We don't know when that door will be. We don't know when our life will end. But as long as you have breath, there's hope for you. There's love for you. There's grace for you. There's salvation for you. We don't know the day of our death. It could come at any moment. The door could slam. And we'll give an account of, to the Lord. Are you ready? Some of these people were not. He says there are many. There are many. Maybe, maybe you're in that number that may die and lose the opportunity. Every minute. Every minute. Every minute that we live, the door is closing. Think about that. Nearer and nearer until that day in which we will stand. These were decent people, I'm sure, religious, moral people. And Jesus says, we knew about you. And they said to Jesus, actually, we know about you. We had meals with you. We're familiar with your teaching. How, how in the world could we be on that side of the door, knocking at the door, and yet you say you don't know me? And Jesus says, because you knew about me, but you didn't know me. You spent time looking at the door, but you neglected to pass through it by repentance and faith. They were close, that's the point, but they never responded. Will you respond? Will he recognize you? Do you have a real personal relation with Jesus, relationship with Jesus? Have you, have you truly repented of being your own Lord, your own Savior, justifying and trying to make it on your own? Have you really said, you know what, I am solely, completely trusting and resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone? He's now my Lord, He's now my Savior, and I give my life completely to Him. 
Does that mean we live perfectly each and every day? Absolutely not. But ask yourself the question. Do you have a personal relationship with him? Have you received him? Received him in faith, trusting in the cross? Or is it social? Is it, is it superficial? Is it cultural? That's the question that Jesus is getting at. And that's the question I want to pose to you. This is not me. This is Jesus. Lastly, the banquet of salvation is wide. Verses 28 through 30 envision for us this eschatological end times banquet with the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets all joined together by this, this crowd from all the points east, west, north, and south of the world while others there are left outside. Notice what it says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The messianic banquet that was supposed to bring joy and satisfaction will, will be, will, will for many though, will be despair and destruction. In that place, verse 28, what place? where those who have rejected, rejected outside the door for unbelief. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Again, I think the warning of Jesus is saying, don't, don't presume, don't assume that the kingdom of God is yours because of your exposure to Jesus, some ethnic, ethnic origin, or, hey, I go to church, I teach children's church, I, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, my parents, my grandparents, they, they all love Jesus. What about you? And, and to be very certain at what is, what, what is at stake here, Jesus speaks about hell with perfect clarity. What terrible suffering there will be for everyone who gets shut out of God's kingdom. Jesus the Lord, our God, in various places speaks about heaven and hell and speaks about hell particularly as a, a eternal conscience torment that is unending. Eternal and unending. A place where there'll be weeping profusely, there'll be gnashing of teeth, grinding teeth in, in agony and angry defiance against God forever and ever and ever. In fact, Revelation 14 says that Satan and demons and those who, who do not pass through the narrow door will be tormented forever in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God and his holy angels. Notice it says, tormented forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus reigns and rules over all creation. Heaven and hell, he is Lord over all. John 5 says he will be judge of all. And when we die, there's no opportunity. The door will slam, we'll stand before Jesus, we'll be sentenced and punished in hell. That's what the text is teaching. The amount of punishment to the degree of wickedness in this present life. I, I believe the scriptures teach not only the degrees of hell, but the degrees of heaven. But that doesn't really matter because there's not one millisecond do we want to spend in eternity in hell separate from God. Right? I don't think, in fact, I know, I'll say that, Jesus does not get a thrill getting great joy at seeing people perish for not repenting, for not trusting, and therefore not entering the narrow door. The reason why I say that is because what the scriptures teach. Two places in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, the Lord speaking, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he or she should turn from their way and live. 
Obviously, the answer is no, I don't take pleasure. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's in Ezekiel. As hard as this text is, it's not me saying it. These are the words of Jesus. It's my responsibility as your pastor, as your Bible teacher, to speak the truth in love to you this morning. I stand before Jesus, I will, and give an account for what I say. I'm not going to try to sell you anything. I'm just giving you the text, and I don't think Jesus is going to sell you a lie either. (laughs) Meanwhile, somehow, while these people are outside the kingdom, the scripture tells us they're able to see the place of blessing. They will see the love and the grace and the mercy of God. They will see the joy and the gratitude of the people at the banquet of God that are enjoying the fellowship with God and the sweet communion with God. And for all the days, those people will regret the folly and the opportunity that was passed and they have no one to blame but themselves and they see the kingdom. They see the banquet. Jesus describes them standing outside the kingdom looking at the prophets, looking at the patriarchs and they watch the guests arrive to the feast in the house of God. Verse 29. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and from the south and recline at the table, that's the banquet table, in the kingdom of God. Verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. In other words, there will be people who have always been outsiders would now enter into the household of God. And people who always thought, no, we're inside, no matter what, will find themselves outside looking in. You see, God is not only the one who saves the Jewish people, and he does, but he saves the Gentiles. This, that's, what, that's what the text means, this worldwide banquet image of salvation and, and fellowship and blessing that comes actually goes back all the way to the Old Testament. We studied Isaiah. We saw this in multiple places in the Old Testament, prophesying that from the north and from the east and from the west and from the south, this gathering, Isaiah 45, Isaiah 49, In fact, in Isaiah 25, it says this, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. Isaiah 25, 6. Our place in the kingdom is all about our communion with God. It's about being home. And family, those at the banquet, those that are invited through this narrow door, let me make it really clear. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you're here and you're a child of God and you're resting solely on the work of Christ, the work has been done for you. It's not you working toward it. It's not what you do, it's what's been done, and that's in Christ alone. So don't walk away thinking today, oh, I've got to strive, I've got to keep working because I've got to earn my salvation. That is not what the text says. This text is for those who are half-heartedly coming to Christ and don't really know him. We pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to truly be open to the gospel and receive the grace and the mercy and the God that's in Christ Jesus alone. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to him comes to the Father, but through Him. So don't walk away. I, I would hate for any of you to walk away who are truly been resting in the promised work of Christ, trying to earn your way. You won't. Rest in the gospel. 
But maybe for one or two of you that, that are here this morning or watching online, that you know what? You, you haven't really repented. You haven't truly gave your life to Christ. You haven't truly bowed your knee to the King of Kings who gave his life for you and worship and serve him. That's what this message is for. Like the communion table, one must enter the narrow door on the terms that God has declared. Luke chapter 5, verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, because there are none. I have not come to call the righteous, but sin is to repentance. You and I must recognize our need and come to Jesus for aid. Why? Because we know what salvation demands. We know that our burden of sin must be taken away. As the band comes up, and as we begin to think through and, and be ready to confess and repent of sin, recognizing that this table represents and points to the gospel, that his body was broken for our sins, that the blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We need a perfect sacrifice to atone for all the sins we have done and a perfect holiness to make us righteous before God. You and I will never be righteous. We have to believe and trust and have Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. His perfect holiness on our account. The problem is not God. The problem is not the narrow door. The problem is the sinner who refuses to repent and believe. But how gracious is God? How gracious is God to open the door for rebels and sinners? How gracious is Jesus in his invitation to come freely to eat and drink? To walk through that narrow door that's been opened by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and him alone. Listen, atheists got it wrong. As the proverb says, only a fool in his heart said there is no God. There is a God. There is life after God. And you know what? The pluralists got it wrong. There are not many doors that lead to God. There are not many doors that lead to salvation. There's not many doors that lead to eternal life. Not all religions bring us to the same place. Not all beliefs are equal. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And family, let me tell you something else. The universalists are wrong too because not everyone will die and go to a better place. It's the stupid things people say at funerals because they can't deal with death or they're uncomfortable to deal with it. But you and I are here this morning in a position that is, is the most important decision that we need to make. Will you pass through the door? Of all the doors you'll pass through, you'll go through these double doors, you'll go that door, you open your door, and your car, you'll get home, you open that. All the doors, I want to just, just as you open those doors, remind yourselves that the door of salvation has been opened. You can't get it open. God opened it. But the door's been opened by grace, through faith, in love and mercy through Christ alone. Rest solely on his work, family, this morning. There's one door, the most important door. It's the door of faith. Will you trust Christ today? Resting on his finished work. Resting on the love and the grace of God. The work has been done for you. The table is not King's Chapel. The table is not a Baptist table. It is, it is the Lord's table. 
And Jesus himself, by the power and presence of his spirit, is inviting you to come. And maybe today will be the day that you say, you know what, I need to stop playing around, but I need to strive. I need to just be serious about repenting and trusting. And today's the day, I'm all yours, Lord. And if that's you this morning, and that's what you, that's what the spirit of God is bringing into your mind and heart, you're welcome to come. It's a believer's table. If you're still not there, like I said before, Keep coming, keep reading the scripture, keep announcing and declaring the gospel, praying that God opens your heart and soul to receive the truth. So the band's gonna play, we're gonna come down the aisles, you're gonna sit back with the elements and then spend some time confessing, repenting, uh, and then we will celebrate the work of Christ as we partake of the communion elements together. Let us pray. Father, thank you. As we've said, sometimes hard words produce soft hearts. Father, soften our hearts by your love, by your grace, by your mercy. Help us to recognize that the door of salvation has been done for us in Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn forgiveness, to earn your presence. God, there's nothing we can do to come into your holy, righteous presence except Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is it. So Father, may your spirit open our hearts. May we see the beauty of the gospel. And maybe for the first time, someone here today needs to say, I'm I'm, going to hear the command of Christ. I'm going to strive. Not to earn my salvation, but I'm not not playing anymore. I'm going to yield my life completely to Christ who died for me and rose for me. And I'm going to walk with him by the power of the spirit each and every day. And if you, Lord, we just pray for that soul today to receive that message. And for, the, for those who already know you, God, we want to rest in your sovereignty. We want to rest in your goodness. We want to rest in your forgiveness. We want to rest in your grace. Rest in your love that you love us. You forgive us. Our past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. So help us all, Lord, to confess, repent, and celebrate the work of Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.